Some of you Lord of the Rings enthusiasts may appreciate this, but it begins with the forging of the great rings. And three of these great rings were given to uh, the elves, uh, these immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. And then seven of these great rings were given to the dwarf lords. And these were the great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. Nine of these great rings were given to the race of men who above all else desired power. And then within these rings was bound the strength and will to rule each race. But unbeknownst to these various people, they did not know that there was this master ring, this one ring to rule them all that was being crafted in the fires of Mount Doom by the the dark lord Sauron that would rule all the other rings, control all the other rings, and bring it all into subjection. I remember a lot of fans, they raised this question, you know, why can't Gandalf touch the ring? And the answer is, he can touch the ring, but he chooses purposefully not to hold the ring because he knows that the ring has so much power that it will probably corrupt him. It reminds me of... uh, Uh, The 19th century English historian Lord Acton, he says that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is why in this passage, for eons of human history, uh, especially in Israel's history, God purposefully separated the two most powerful offices in the entire land of Israel, that is the king office and the priest office. He did this on purpose. And it was initially instituted in Genesis 49, You remember the blessing that Jacob bestowed upon uh, Judah. He says that the scepter will not depart from you, nor the staff from between your feet. And so the line of kings would disseminate through this king, Judah, through the line of Judah. And then you have a separate line that is through Levi, where you get the priests, the high priests. And so you see the separation that God instituted, indeed even grounding it in the bloodline, a separation between these two most powerful offices in the land of Israel. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is because if you were to merge those offices, it would be a power that is too great, too lofty, uh, too enormous, that surely no one man could wield that power with wisdom and self-control. And we know this because even if you look at the kings, even if you were to isolate kings, you can see a line of corruption, can you not? Uh, that's why when you read your Bibles, it's a, it's, a, it's a breath of, it's a sigh of relief. Whenever you come across a line where it says that the king, whatever name his name is, did what was right in the sight of God. Because it is in sharp contrast to all the other kings who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then look at the priests. Even the priests who just have this one office of the priesthood, even they corrupt their role. And I think of the sons of Levi, Hophni and Phinehas. And how they would steal from these people. They would exploit the people who are bringing their meat sacrifices to offer this sacrifice to God. And they're stealing from their proceeds. And then there would be women who are serving at the meeting of the the tabernacle. And he is luring them, seducing them to have sex with them. What a wicked thing. That's that's not new. That's that's even modern. I think of Jimmy Swaggart. Great priest, great, great pastor, well-known. Is this uh, popular televangelist who brought reproach on the name of Christ because of his uh, 
escapades with prostitutes. And even a month ago, I, I came across a viral video and, a, and an article exposing this pastor in Warsaw, Indiana. You probably heard about this, where this pastor uh, took the virginity of a 16-year-old on his office floor. A 16-year-old. And you can understand why someone in such an elevated position of power and responsibility, when they abuse that power, the impact, the, the impact is devastating. It, it tears lives apart. And so you can even see a wisdom in what God is doing here. Paul, you remember, he, he received these amazing revelations from God, these, these startling visions from heaven. And he says that to prevent him from exalting himself, God gave him a thorn in the flesh to humble him. God will send even a, a messenger of Satan to you to humble you because that's how much he hates pride and even in his, Israel's history, you see examples of, of men, of kings who, who are not content with their role as king. You think of King Saul and how he wrongfully, sinfully assumed uh, the role of a priest. Uh, he didn't wait for Samuel to come, the prophet. And he was facing these 36,000 Philistines. And rather than waiting and trusting in Yahweh to provide the prophet, to, to seek the Lord's counsel, he Pre presumptuously burns these offerings when he shouldn't have done that as a king and not a priest. And what did God do? He stripped his authority. He defrocked him from his kingship. And his kingdom would not last forever. And then I think of King Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26. Uh, it, it begins by saying that he was a righteous king. He did what was right in the sight of God. And yet, towards the end of his life, because he was winning all these battles, his heart became proud. The text says he lifted up his heart within him. He assumed a priestly function that he should have not done. And then the priest, Azariah, comes to him and confronts him. And then he brings 80 other priests with him to confront him. You can't do this. And he responds with anger. And immediately, God strikes his forehead with leprosy. And he runs out of the sanctuary. He's isolated in a separate house for the rest of his life. So you can see again and again why it was so important to separate these offices. Indeed, God did this in his wisdom to create a kind of accountability. If you even look at Deuteronomy 17, when it says you are to appoint kings, there are three things they're not to do. That is, they can't have much gold, they can't have much horses, and they can't have many wives because the text says that the heart of this king will be turned away. And then one positive thing that God implements is that he must receive the scrolls he must read it every day so that he will know how to observe every single dictate of the living God and rule in a way that pleases God. And we even see this in our country. Uh, fathers of our country, they understood this basic principle of accountability. And we have three branches of government. We have the legislative branch. We have the executive branch. We have the judicial branch. And that is obviously because if one man had all that power, there is this sinful propensity in the heart of every man to abuse that power, uh, to exercise a kind of authoritarian, dictatorial reign over the people, not out of love, but out of selfish ambition. And so for the first time in this psalm, Psalm 110, for the first time in the redemptive history of Israel, both of these offices of king and priest are marvelously converged in the person of Jesus the Messiah. 
Now you notice that in verse 1, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That is emphasizing his kingship. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So you see this, this merging between these two offices. And I believe that David probably was writing this because in 2 Samuel 5, he had just defeated the enemy, the Jebusites. And then he conquered the city of Zion, established his rule there. I believe it was around that time, in a, in a very apt and timely display of divine providence, I believe that Yahweh probably gave to David a very special vision, a, a prophetic vision, where David essentially, you can notice that if you just read the, the, the verses in the psalm, where David essentially is eavesdropping in this sort of prophetic intra-Trinitarian conversation. This conversation between Yahweh and then his Lord, the, the, the Messiah, David has this privileged kind of glimpse into this conversation. And what Yahweh does here is he promises the Messiah. This is a prophetic oracle looking to the future. It's a prophetic look at Jesus Christ. He promises two things. Number one, he will be the supreme king, verse one. And then number two, he will be the supreme priest, verse four. This psalm is a coronation psalm. It's a royal psalm that would be sung of the king's who would ascend the throne, especially when they defeated a land, a city, or conquered uh, a land. This, this psalm would be uh, a special psalm to, to coronate the king, to honor the king. But this psalm before us, there's a number of those royal psalms. Psalm 2 is a very famous one. But this psalm in particular is a special psalm. It's a unique coronation psalm because of this unique promise in verse 4 of this eternal priesthood status. It's a very unique psalm. David, I don't think he's talking about himself here. He's directly speaking about the Messiah. Uh, he's acting in this role as a prophet or one who's receiving special prophetic revelation from Yahweh. And I want to give you his purpose very clearly. I think this is David's purpose. As he's writing the psalm, his purpose, very simply, if you take away anything, you have to understand this, it is to present the coming Messiah as the unique and supreme king-priest. To present the coming Messiah as the unique and supreme king-priest who doesn't just rule men on the horizontal level as a king, but he represents man on the vertical level as a priest. And so in, in an economy of words, in this one psalm, we see that together the psalmist is painting this all-inclusive, gorgeously simple yet profound portrait of the coming Messiah. And I believe that this should give you so much confidence. This should give you so much joy. This should give you total confidence in the unique supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because both of these offices beautifully converge. And I just want to add a caveat. I don't want to belabor this. Just a quick caveat. You guys have probably heard of uh, Jesus being referred to as the prophet, priest, king. Latin phrase, I think it was developed by, uh, described by Eusebius and then developed by John Calvin. It's uh, the Latin phrase they use is munus triplex to refer to this threefold office of Christ. I personally am not convinced that Jesus holds an official office as a prophet. I believe it is just the priest and king. And the reason I say that, I'm not going to belabor this. You can talk about that later if you want. But the reason I say that is because Jesus is more than just a prophet. He is the very revelation. The prophet is a divine spokesperson. Jesus, on the other hand, he is the word incarnate. He is the revelation. 
And in Psalm 110, you see this, uh, this presentation of these two offices of king and priest. I just showed you Genesis 49 and the Levitical priesthood. Throughout the scripture, even in Hebrews 7, Psalm 110 informs the authorial logic of the author of Hebrews where he presents Jesus, the Messiah, the coming king, as coming king and coming priest. But he almost seems to downplay this prophetic role in a slight way. We just looked at it in Hebrews 1. He says, in former times I spoke through the prophets, but today I speak through my son. The reason why I think that matters is because I mentioned last week that the Psalms, they tell a story. The Psalms are not just a random collection. It's not just this arbitrary string of, of fragmented thoughts. Uh, each Psalm, as you know, it tells a theology. It, it usually highlights a, a single aspect of God that helps you to worship God, helps you to understand God better, helps you to love Him more. But Psalm 110 is so unique because in it, The two most powerful offices in history are ascribed eternally and supremely to the Messiah, which paints this very beautiful and fully orbed picture of the Messiah. It's almost like this uh, kind of a condensed systematic theology. One in one psalm, it's kind of like a theological steak dinner. It, It has so much in it. And I read this commentator, commentator, this guy named Cross, he says, it is not the pious human being and his religion that are the objects of a theology of the Psalms, but the testimony which by, by which those who sing, pray, and speak point beyond themselves. Another commentator, Gorgon, he says, uh, if the book of Psalms teaches us anything, it is that the only proper outlook for the people of God is to focus constantly on God himself, on his character, his deeds, his purposes, and so on. This psalm, as I mentioned before, it's, it's sort of like a, a theological linchpin between Genesis 14, which gives you a sort of preview into this unique king, Melchizedek, who's actually not from Israel, who the text describes as a priest and king. But he's not from Israel. And that's why I say for the first time in Israel's redemptive history, Jesus is presented as the eternal priest king. And then it's linking Genesis 14 to Psalm 110 and then looking forward to Hebrews 7. And so it really covers so much of the Bible. And I think even there you just see this incredible thing about Psalm 110, this most quoted psalm in the entire Bible. It is the most quoted Old Testament passage of any other passage in the entire Old Testament. This one psalm is so rich, so profound. And so I just want to look at it in two parts. Uh, this is the way I think the, the text is ordered. And I want to try to accomplish three things. I want to look at, firstly, Jesus' Messiah kingship. Uh, I want to look at the Messiah as the supreme king. And then I want to look at Messiah as the supreme priest. These are the two oracles that Yahweh gives David. And then finally, I just want to conclude by asking, so what? Why does this all matter? Why is it significant that Jesus is presented as this king priest? So look at the first one with me, verse 1. This is the first prophetic oracle that, mis- that Yahweh is giving to the Messiah. And David has this unique glimpse into it. And it is Messiah as the supreme king. If you notice the text of this psalm, you'll notice so many links, a remarkable number of allusions and parallels to another psalm in the Bible, Psalm chapter 2. And in verse 6, Yahweh says, I will establish my son on Zion as a king. And many other passages or verses in that psalm all help to anticipate the coming Messiah as a king. So I just want to show you four aspects, just in verse 1 and 2 and 3, just this first part, verses 1 to 3. I want to show you four aspects of this messianic kind of kingship. 
And verse 1, like I said, is this prophetic oracle. Verses 2 and 3 are kind of spelling out the implications of that prophetic oracle delivered in verse 1. Same thing in verse 4. This is the second prophetic oracle that Yahweh gives to David. And then verses 5 to 6, to the end of this psalm, it kind of spells out the implications of that second promise. So that's how the text breaks up compositionally. But just look at this first part, verses 1 to 3. And I want to show you four brief nuances, four quick aspects of Messiah's kingship. The first one is, in the very first line, uh, it presents Messiah as the greater king. So just look at that first line. It says, Yahweh says to my Lord. Yahweh says to my Lord. Uh, Jesus quotes this psalm, this first verse, many, many times in the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He quotes it so many times. And the context of the times when Jesus, is invokes the, Jesus invokes this psalm, this verse, is very instructive because the context is one in which the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're doing everything that they possibly can do to try to undermine Jesus' authority, undermine his credibility, undermine his publicity. They're asking all kinds of intense questions, int- intensely interrogating him, trying to trap him so that they can somehow undermine him. And yet Jesus responds to every single question they level against him with such wisdom, with such prowess, with such an amazing divine response that it shuts everybody up. They can't say anything back to Jesus. And now it's Jesus' turn. And guess what scripture he turns to? Psalm chapter 110, verses 1. He quotes it in, in Matthew chapter 22. Let me read that to you. Right after he's in this duel, this is what he says to them. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of God, uh, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. David, as the king of Israel, he was in the most powerful seat of authority. And now you see this very provocative thing that Jesus observes, and it's right there in the text. He says, why does Yahweh say to David, my Lord? Or why does David say of his own son, he's my Lord? And that would indicate, that would imply that whoever David is speaking of here, this person, his son, who's his Lord, must be somebody who has greater authority, greater power, greater prowess than himself. This this one simple verse, it, it shows that Jesus is the greater king. And just a just a simple point of application there that I think we can glean from this is, you know, Jesus doesn't foist upon them some complex riddle. He doesn't give them this obscure challenge. He just goes back to a passage they probably read thousands and thousands of times, probably memorized, and even taught. And he says, points out a very simple observation right there in the text, and they're so totally oblivious that they respond dumbfounded. And I wonder how often, you know, even us, like as we're approaching the word of God, there are probably so many things right there in the text. And because of the hardness of our heart, because of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, 
it sort of blinds us, I think, uh, from really receiving it. That's why we sing sometimes, help us to receive your word. Give us a supple heart. Help us to receive it with, with grace and humility. Because oftentimes the biggest barrier to understanding divine truth is you. It's not some external force. It's not some genetic predisposition. It is not some political atrocity. It is usually just you. And therefore, I just think of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, how they knew all these scriptures. They're almost spelling out everything in front of Jesus. And he says, you foolish man. Why are you so, so slow to heart to believe all that the scripture, all that the prophets have said? And towards the end, it says that he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. So I think that's a good prayer for you, Bethany Bible Church, as you're reading the Bible, not just coming to a point of like, okay, I get what this text says intellectually. I can read a commentary, I could ask Paul and get an answer, but at the end of the day, if we're really going to receive the word, he has to open our minds, he has to open our hearts. It's not just a matter of intellectual assent, but moral submission. And indeed, this is something that only... God, only Jesus can give us. Here's a second aspect. Messiah is the exalted king. And look at the second part of verse 1. It says, sit at my right hand. That idiom, sit at my right hand, is a, is a popular idiom in the Bible that basically indicates that whoever is sitting at the right hand of a person in authority uh, has a comparable or equal authority and, and profound honor. And the New Testament also uses this language of sitting at the right hand or standing at the right hand multiple times. And if you examine those passages, all those times where uh, somebody takes, uh, some New Testament author takes this Psalm 110 verse 1, sit at my right hand, he uh, uses it in the New Testament, you'll notice certain uh, inferences or certain implications or certain nuances that he brings out in the way he's using this idiom, this uh, sit at my right hand phraseology. If you look at Acts 2, uh, 33 and 34, uh, Peter basically shows that this exaltation, uh, it follows, logically, Jesus' death and his resurrection. And then he uses this to basically prove that whoever David is speaking about here, this my Lord, it has to be someone greater than David because David never died and resurrected and then ascended to heaven. So whoever is sitting at the right hand, it assumes that it is a result of having been exalted from this point of having died, having been buried, having been resurrected, and then finally ascended. And so he uses this to show that obviously David, or this my Lord, this Messiah, is greater than David. It is not just referring to David. A second nuance you'll notice is that he's greater than the angels. We looked at Hebrews 1 earlier today. He's greater than the angels. Because to which angel did he ever say, verse 1, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. No, none of them. And so it shows you the unique position of the Messiah. He has a unique, exalted position. Thirdly, in Acts chapter 5, Luke records this incident where uh, this, this text is quoted, and it is used to basically contrast the fact that men, when Jesus came, was, was rejecting the Messiah. They rejected Jesus Christ, but on the other hand, by contrast, God, the Father, accepts him and then exalts him. And you see another usage in Romans 8.34. Paul mentions this language of being seated at the right hand of God and then indicating that he makes intercession for you. Uh, it, it is that when he's ascended to this place on the throne, it, exalted at the right hand of God, there he prays on your behalf to the Father. 
You see that in even John 17, another sort of eavesdropping into this intra-Trinitarian conversation where Jesus is praying on behalf of people, saints. He has redeemed, praying that God would keep them to the end. There you see his intercession ministry. And then finally, you see that the sacrifice is complete. Hebrews 10 mentions the same phraseology, seated at the right hand, used to indicate that his sacrifice, because remember, if he's being exalted, that logically means that he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, he was ascended. That logically means there was something profound there, the gospel indeed. And what he's indicating there, the author of Hebrews, is that Jesus' sacrifice is complete. It is finished. It is once and for all. Not like the priests of old. They have to sacrifice these animals every single day. And it doesn't actually take away your sin. But Jesus' sacrifice, His ministry, His death, His burial, His resurrection, that actually accomplishes total and comprehensive atonement of all the sins of every single person who would ever believe in Him in one single act. And so His sacrifice is complete. And then finally, Hebrews 10.13, it mentions what this psalm mentions right here. That when Jesus, the Messiah, is exalted to this place of the right hand of the Father, that that indicates that all the enemies are going to do what? They're going to bow down. They're not going to reign anymore. They're going to be used as a footstool for his feet. Now, I want to make a very brief point of application here. A very brief point. And it's simply this. Jesus was exalted, but it was not by him exalting himself. He humiliated himself. He humbled himself. And then at the right time, God exalted him. So it is not intrinsically wrong to want to be exalted. That's a desire that I believe God has ingrained in the hearts and minds and psyches of every single human being. But what matters is how you achieve that. And that's why if you notice in the Bible, there's almost this axiomatic phrase, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. And then at the proper time, he will exalt you. And so the beautiful thing there is that we don't just look and gawk at Jesus' exaltation. If he redeems you, if he saves you, if he sanctifies you, he will one day glorify you. He will exalt you at the proper time. And so you get to share in Jesus' exaltation, and that's amazing. A third aspect of the Messiah as a king, he's the conquering king. And you see that at the end of verse 1, it says, Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, Again, in verse 2, he says, your, your scepter will go from Zion. He will rule in the midst of his enemies. And so you see that this is not sort of a yin and yang sort of battle. It is total, complete subjugation of the enemies. Joshua 10.24 uses the same language. After they beat the kings, they brought them to Joshua, and he ensured that all the commanders of the army, army put their feet on the necks of the enemy to show total humiliation, total subjugation of the enemies. And that was something that God gave. But just just notice one thing here. He says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then look at verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So I have a simple question for you, Bethany Bible Church. Who is the enemy? Who is Messiah's enemy? Satan? Okay. One simple exegetical thing is here is that He's not talking about simply subjugating political forces. He's not talking about simply putting down human political kings. This is talking about spiritual, total, complete subjugation of all the forces of evil. But when he mentions, in terms of individuals, who is my enemy, I think it is anyone who is not actively for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Because remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12.30. 
He says, whoever is not with me is what? He's against me. And so who is the man that God looks for? I thought of Isaiah chapter 66. You can turn there. It's a, it's a very instructive passage because some of the language even it sort of parallels to this passage. Uh, this language of footstool and kingship and throne. And then it tells us what kind of person God is actually looking for. In Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2, this is what Yahweh says to Isaiah, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. There you see the footstool language. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. And thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. In other words, he's saying to David, he's, he's saying, I'm going to build this house for you. And he's saying, you are going to build a house for me? Who do you think you are? I'm the sovereign God. I created all these things. I created the heavens. I created the earth. I created the sea and everything in him. Who do you think you are? All these things came into being because of me. But then he says this very powerful statement at the end of verse 2. He says, but to this one I will look. To him who is humble, who is contrite of spirit. Number three, who trembles at my word. Very deep attitudes of a man that God looks for. He looks beyond the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. These are the things that God is actually looking for. And it shows us because even if you go back to Psalm 110, and you notice verse 3, what it says, it says your people, verse 2 is talking about the Messiah ruling, but then verse 3, it says that the Messiah's subjects, his people, look at what it says, will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In other words, they're going to be willing. They're going to willingly enlist themselves to fight with Yahweh. And you notice in that simple phrase, the, this phraseology of willing, that they themselves have been broken to the point of abandoning their own will. And submitting to the will of God. They're not following their own will and their own way, but they're submitting to God's will and God's way. And that's why the text says here that in this future time, there will be people, there will be a whole swath of people, these people whose loyalty is given to Messiah alone, who will come willingly because they have come to the end of themselves. They have abandoned their own will, their own ambitions, their own goals, their own affections, and they've totally and unequivocally submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over their life. And I think that's how you evidence that your king is Jesus. A simple question to ask yourself is, who is the boss? At any moment in your life when you're tempted to sin, are you going to obey your will? Or are you going to obey God's? Who is the boss? Who calls the shots in your life? And when you submit to the authority of God over your mind, your heart, and your will, you are evidencing in a very powerful gospel testimony the reality that Jesus is your king and it foreshadows to this day when Jesus will literally come down, establish his millennial kingdom, and that we will serve as kingdom subjects, kingdom citizens in this kingdom on earth. And he will rule from Zion. It's an amazing thing to look forward to. One more thing on this kingship topic. Messiah as the cosmic king. So take those first three verses. Bring them together. What do you notice? I just mentioned before, this kingship, this ruling, is not just over human political kings. It is over every force of evil that ever existed. Psalm 110.1 is a reverse of Genesis 3.15. Jesus is undoing 
Genesis 3.15. He said that I will make enmity between you and the woman. Or the woman and the, and the seed of the serpent. I will make enmity. But then here in Psalm 110, he's saying, I'm going to bring your enemies before. I'm going to put them as a footstool for your feet. In this one verse, Psalm 110, it reverses what you see in Genesis 3.15. It's amazing because Jesus reverses this curse by receiving the curse in himself. He absolves the enmity mentioned in Genesis 3.15 by absorbing God's wrath on our behalf. I thought of uh, this Greek mythology, the Pandora's box, and how, uh, as the Greek myth goes, the Prometheus, the god of fire, he, he, he steals fire from, from the gods, and Zeus is angry. And so then, basically, this all leads to him making, calling another god to make this first woman named Pandora. And she's given this box, this box full of all these things, so she doesn't know what's in it. And she's told you need to guard this box and never to open it. But then the temptation is just too great that one day she does open this box. And what comes out of the box is every manner of evil, every manner of sickness, every manner of death comes out. And in a quick, hasty way, she quickly closes the box. And the only thing that's left there is what? Hope. You see that even in Eve. God gave her this explicit command of all the trees you can eat, and to Adam, all these trees you can eat, but from the the fruit of the trees that are in the middle of the garden, you shall not touch it, you shall not eat it. And yet she disobeyed, ate from the tree, all manner of sickness, all manner of death, all manner of evil entered into the world. And yet what God did in his grace in Genesis 3.15 is offer this morsel of hope that one day this Messiah would come. One day Jesus would come and he would crush the head of the serpent that even though the serpent may bruise his heel, he will crush the head of the serpent. He will accomplish redemption and reconciliation of sinful man back to a holy God. In such an economy of words, in just this one verse, you have so much theology embedded in it. And this leads me to the second promise, the prophetic promise number two. Look at verse four. This is Messiah as the supreme priest. Messiah as the supreme priest. Verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is an allusion back to Genesis 14. I just mentioned Melchizedek. Uh, after Abraham or Abram, he saved and rescued his nephew Lot. Uh, this non-Israelite king and priest Melchizedek appears sort of mysteriously. He's sort of this enigmatic fellow. There's no mention of his genealogy before him or after him. And so he is sort of a type, a sor- a sort of a, a foreshadowing of the eternal king priest Jesus Christ, and then in Hebrews 7, the author of Hebrews expounds on the significances of this Melchizedekian priesthood. And there are three implications that he spells out there. Number one, he says that Messiah is going to be a greater priest, which is indicated in the change of the priesthood. And so if you look at Hebrews 7, I'm not going to look at it right now, but what you'll notice, and you can look at this later, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 and 12 to 14, you'll see that in, in, in times past, you had these priests who descended from Levi and they would offer these sacrifices and it was temporary. Eventually they would die and then you get the new priest. And it would all happen by biological descent. And it was temporary. It was fleeting. It was ephemeral. But Jesus would be the greater priest. Messiah would be this greater priest which is indicated by this change in the priesthood. Why are they changing it? It's because he is going to be the guarantor of a better covenant. That's the second implication you notice. 
God adds this oath to the beginning of this promise. So in verse 1, he says, Yahweh says to my Lord, the word says there, it's just this prophetic word, Neum, a very strong word, is basically saying, thus saith the Lord. But then in verse 4, it's even stronger because it says, Yahweh has sworn with an oath. That's very rare in the scriptures where Yahweh is swearing with an oath and he does this so you have greater confidence, greater trust in the truth and the reliability of this promise that indeed Yahweh will send this Messiah. Jesus will be the guarantor of a better covenant. You can read about that in Hebrews 7, 20 to 22. And then finally, it emphasizes, Hebrews 7 does, the eternal nature of Jesus's priestly work. Hebrews 7, 23 and 25 mentions that, that it is eternal Verse 4 here says, you are going to be a priest forever. Not like those old priests who eventually will die and get old, but you will last forever. And I think there's amazing application we can get from that for the saints here. And the first thing I'll notice or note is that if you want to be astonished by the gospel, if you want to be astonished by the person of Messiah, the person of Christ, you don't necessarily have to just look at the cross. It is amazing. The cross is amazing. You can look back 2,000 years and, and enjoy that and be so transformed by that and be sanctified by that and take so much joy in that. That's amazing. But you can even ask, what is Messiah doing right now? And what he's doing right now is he's interceding on behalf of you to the Father for your sanctification and one day glorification. That's an amazing truth that you can cling on to for hope and confidence John 17 shows you a picture of that. I just mentioned that. And here's the second thing you'll notice is I, I noticed because I'm, I'm in, in high school ministry at Grace and it's very common where a guy will come up to me in my small group and say, you know, I did this really bad thing. I'm too afraid to admit what I did. And they're ashamed to go to God. They feel like they need to warm up to God before they can talk to him. They did this really wicked thing. And so they feel like they need to sort of self-atone, maybe wait a few days, maybe read a maybe read the New Testament, and then they feel okay to come to God and talk to Him. But that is not the God we worship. If you've been saved, if you've been redeemed, you can come to Him right away. Romans 8.15, it says that one of the evidences that the spirit of adoption is true of your life is that by nature, sort of instinctively, you cry out, Abba, Father. That in the midst of temptation, in the midst of trial and temptation, you naturally, instinctively run to him. You don't draw away from him, you run towards him. And James 4.8 says that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And that links to this third point of application for you. And that is simply about the character of God. God genuinely wants your good. We might associate that with sort of prosperity gospel preaching. If we mention, you know, health and wealth, and, and, and we need to repudiate that. We need to reject that, the, the excesses of that. But at the same time, it is true that God wants your joy. He does want your happiness. He wants your joy and confidence. These are things that God wants to give you. Even Matthew 7, it says, If even evil fathers know how to give good gifts to, your, to their children, how much more will your heavenly Father Know how to give good gifts to those who ask Him. Did you notice the qualifying phrase there? To those who ask Him. And I think He gives these good gifts to those who ask Him because you are evidencing this faith and trust that God is not this miserable dictator. He's not abusing power like all these men of old. That He is a good God. He can wield an immense amount of power with absolute wisdom and discretion and self-control and that He genuinely wants your good. 
Now let me conclude with uh, sort of bringing these pieces together. What is the significance of all of this? Verse 4 is really the central verse. It, it emphasizes the main point of this psalm, that is Jesus assuming this role as the supreme priest. You know that Jesus came from the line of Judah. We understand that he's going to be a king. What is very surprising is that he's also a priest, because that is from the, typically from the line of Levi. And so a simple question you need to ask yourself is, why does David, as he's writing Psalm 110, why does he feel the need? Why does he feel this great compulsion where he wants to relate to his reader, this aspect of Jesus' priestly office. Why does he want to emphasize that so much? And the simple explanation to that is, if there is no priestly office in the Messiah, there's no gospel. If there's no priest, there's no gospel. Listen to these quotes by Joel Beakey. He says, If Christ were a revealing prophet and a conquering king, but not a merciful priest to bring forgiveness and grace, then there would be no gospel for sinners but only a revelation of justice and execution of wrath. And his priesthood fills his whole office with tender mercies for those who deserve the fires of hell. Hugh Martin says regarding the priesthood of Christ, it propitiates, that is, it satisfies and appeases God. It intercedes to God. It satisfies God's justice. It pacifies God's wrath. It secures God's favor. It seals God's covenant love and gives effect to God's eternal purpose and grace. That when you see this coming together, this amalgamation of the king and priest office, you are seeing this climactic, consummate, glorious presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ that should do nothing other than engender in you this incredible awe and reverence and obedience to Christ. Is that not right? I remember this uh, African kind of parable, this proverb. It's kind of funny. It's called uh, The Chicken Thief. And uh, basically, it's, uh, there's this town, this mythical town, where the, the king in this land noticed that chickens were going missing. And so the people in this, in this uh, town, they, started, they complained to the king, hey, chickens are going missing. Catch this guy. But nobody knew who was stealing these chickens. And so the king, he imposes this penalty. If we find you... Stealing more chickens, we're going to beat you. We're going to beat you with 20 lashes. Still, chickens are going missing. And so the king gets angry. And he raises the penalty to 50 lashes. He says, if you steal chickens one more time, and if you don't turn yourself in, we are going to give you 50 lashes in the public square for everyone to see you. And still, no thief turned himself in, and there were more chickens missing. The king got enraged. And he lifted the penalty to a hundred lashes, which is the highest penalty that he could level against somebody. A hundred lashes, nobody has, has survived and lived. He raises it to the highest level. Still, chickens are missing, and the thief doesn't turn himself in until one day this thief is caught, and it turns out this thief is the king's own mom. And so now he's in quite a dilemma now. Because if he executes the sentence of a hundred lashes against his own mom, how is he going to be perceived by his nation? As unkind, unloving, unjust? But then at the same time, if he does execute, or if he doesn't execute this, this wrath, rather, if he, if he forgives her, well now, people may say that's unfair. Because it's your own mom, you're showing partiality. So what the king does in this story, in this parable, is he gets up from his throne 
as his mom is tied it to this pole in the middle of the land there. And everybody's watching this. The king gets up. He removes his throne. He steps down the stairs. He wraps his whole body around his mother and holds her tightly. And then he looks at the executioner and says, now beat the thief. You see this King Jesus, you know, throughout the Bible, we see through the line of Judah, we understand and we expect Messiah will be king. What is astonishing, what is surprising, is that this king will become a priest. And he won't sacrifice another animal, he will sacrifice his own body and accomplish eternal redemption and reconciliation of man. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this psalm, Psalm 110. Thank you for the truths it contains. Use it to change lives. In your name I pray. Amen.